Last week, we talked about what Paul is doing in telling us what these blessings are. He begins by saying, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and then he goes on to articulate what those blessings are. So that's where we're going to pick it up this morning, uh, right in verse 4, and we'll see how far we get. And I'm not under any constraint to move quickly through, especially chapter 1. Um, there is so much detail and really rich uh, information that we need to know, things that will fuel our worship and our affections for Jesus. So, I mean, there's a way that I could go annoyingly slow and really frustrate you by that, and I don't want to do that. But there's a way I could go really quick, and we would miss a lot of really great stuff. So we're going to try to find the balance together, and uh, we're going to try to work through and get as much uh, meat out of this as we can. So I'm really excited. I was, I was ready to preach this on Wednesday, man. I was just fired up. So I'm, I'm excited that you're here with us this morning. So let's read. If you haven't turned there yet, go to Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 4 this morning, and we'll focus on 4. But Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Let's pray together as we begin. Lord, we are corporately and individually dependent upon you for all that we have and all that we need. And Father, I praise you that you are a giving God. Book of Acts says that you give to everyone life and breath and everything. And without your hand upholding us, without your spirit dwelling inside those of us who are saved and have come to know Christ. Without that, Lord, we would be hopelessly lost. And so this morning, as we begin to unpack what it means to be blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, Lord, I pray that it would not only be seen as a benefit to us, but that it would be seen as a testimony to your goodness, your power, and your grace. Like we just sung in that last song, Lord, show us Christ. May my words not be empty, but would clearly communicate what your word says. I have nothing to say on my own. I only want to say what your word says, and so help me this morning, Lord. I pray for these brothers and sisters in the hearing of your word. I pray that each heart would be receptive, open, and willing, Lord, to hear from you this morning. You are our only hope, and we come humbly to you and ask for help now in the preaching and in the listening. And it's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Amen. As I said last week, when we started to look at verse 4, I said that we were going to look at four different parts of that verse. We're not going to do this with every verse. Just relax. I can see the nervousness on some of your faces. But this verse in particular has such meaning and so much going on that I wanted to take it in four different sections. We looked at the first section last week, 
So when we look at verse 4, we see that we were chosen as believers. We were chosen in Christ. This choosing happened before the foundation of the world. And then we also see the purpose of the choosing. Why did God save us? We see all four of those things in verse 4. So this morning we're going to look at the last three. And so if you're a note taker, you can follow along here. Our first point this morning, chosen in Christ. Number one, chosen in Christ. Verse 4 says that not only did God choose us, but it tells us that the choosing was in Him or in Christ. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him. Now why do you think Paul includes this detail? I mean, wouldn't it have been enough just to say that God the Father has chosen us to be his children? That would have been enough. But there's another purpose behind putting this phrase in here that I think. Jesus made it very plain when he was here in his earthly ministry that everything he did, every miracle he performed, every healing, everything was to glorify the Father and to show that he and the Father were one. God the Father does not work separately from the Son. He doesn't hide things from him and act over here without anyone else knowing. They work together. That's one of the reasons I think Paul does this. There's several places in the Gospels that talk about this. I just want to read a couple so that we can get this in our heads. John 10, starting in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father am one. Later in John 10, Jesus says, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. There is a connectedness with God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. They work together. He came to do the will of the Father. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said, this will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The reason Jesus did anything was to bring glory to the Father. So when Paul emphasizes this fact here that we were chosen not only by God the Father, but we were chosen in Christ, I think he's emphasizing that it's not only to do with our union to Christ, which is what in Christ means, we're connected to him, but it also has to do with the Father receiving glory from what the Son has done. If you remember this last week, I said the Christian life is all about glory, Who deserves it and who gets it? And in this case, we see that being chosen in Christ not only brings glory to God the Father in the choosing, but also to Christ in the accomplishment of that choosing. This section of Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, help us see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work in unity together. It's one of the big themes of this section. This is in the theological churchy language is called the doctrine of the trinity triune triunity means that god the father god the son and god the holy spirit work together to accomplish the same purposes this is one place in ephesians 1 that we see this very very clearly 
Also, when Paul says that we were chosen in him, in some ways, I think he's referring to Christ's participation in the Father's act of choosing. Okay, we know that God the Father chose us, but we also know that he does not act without the Son and the Holy Spirit being involved with him. This is Trinitarian in the way he talks. We know that Jesus was there, active in the creation of the world. Just like David read from Colossians 1, it says, By him, by Jesus, all things were created. By him, he was there, he was acting. So here we see that in some way, Christ is also active in the choosing and the electing of God's people. And because this took place before the foundation of the world, I think that this text is telling us about the eternal nature of Jesus. There are some religious groups out there that don't think that Jesus is God. They don't think that he's eternally God, that he was a created being, which is not true according to the Bible. The Bible clearly and indirectly teach us that Christ Jesus is eternally God. He was there at the beginning. John 1, you remember the opening of John 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ never came into existence. He has always been. He's not just a man. He was and is and forever will be God eternal. This is one of the reasons why I just don't want to skip over everything too quickly because there's all of these little nuggets hidden in here and I want to chew on them for a while. Figuratively, not, you know, start munching my Bible. Um, So number one, we have been chosen in Christ. Number two, we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Now often when the Bible talks about our election, our choosing God, choosing a people for his own possession, it talks about it in terms of the timing of that being before God created anything, or in some cases before time began, it might say. And we, of course, see that right here in Ephesians 1, but there's a lot of other places that talk about this too, and I'll just list a couple. Again, I I bring in the other scriptures so that we don't get the idea that this is just one opinion of one person writing. And it is the word of God. He doesn't have to repeat stuff for it to be true. But it's helpful when we see other places in Scripture support the idea and we start to think, okay, this is a pretty big deal. This shows up here and here and here and here. And we can put it all together and have confidence that what it's actually saying is true. Revelation 13 talks about the Lamb's book of life in which those who God has chosen, their names are written in it and it says it was written before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9 says God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Titus 1. In his introduction, Paul mentions this almost in passing. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, that accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God promised before the ages began. So the salvation that we have, the salvation that we know is ours, was given to us, was promised to us before the ages began. The fact that we have been chosen in Christ 
before the foundation of the world is yet another affirmation of the pre-existence or the eternal nature of Jesus. His life, death, resurrection were always the plan of God the Father. That was not plan B. Before the world began, God gave us grace in Christ. John 17, 24. Jesus is praying what's called his high priestly prayer before he's betrayed and goes to the cross. And he says this in verse 24 of chapter 17. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. He was there. He is eternally God. 1 Peter 1.20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus has always existed as God, and it was the plan of the Father from the beginning that he would purchase for the Father a people for his own possession. So why does Paul use this phrase here? Why is it important that we know Today, in the context of the readers 2,000 years ago, why is it important that they know that this choosing happened before anything was made? I think one of the reasons is that it's to affirm to us, to affirm to the reader, that God's election or choosing of a people for his own possession is not based on anything we might do. How could it be? We weren't around, the world didn't exist. And yet God extends grace according to his will, not based on anything we might do. Paul addressed this in the book of Romans when he's making an argument for the case of God's unconditional choosing, meaning there's no condition that a person meets to be chosen by God. And this is what he says in chapter 9, verse 11, using Jacob and Esau from the Old Testament as an example. They were twins. Okay, so this is what he says. Though they, Jacob and Esau, Though they were not yet born or had done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, the mother was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God chose Jacob over Esau before they had done anything. Anything good, anything bad. In other words, it was not based on merit. It was not based on their works or God somehow knew that they'd be more compliant and more flexible to the gospel. That wasn't the case. That makes it clear. It's according to him who calls. God's electing love is set upon us unconditionally, meaning there are no conditions or requirements that we need to meet in order to experience his love. One of the ways we know this to be true is that Christ and the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. When we close later today, I'm going to explain why knowing this in particular should give us such great confidence in our evangelism and in our prayer as we pray for those that we know that are lost. So number two, we're chosen before the foundation of the world The last thing we're going to see in Ephesians 1 verse 4 is also our last point. We'll spend the rest of our time here for the morning. Number three is the purpose of the choosing. The purpose of this choosing. You may have heard what I said last week and hear what I'm saying this morning and go, okay, I can see where this is 
biblically true. There's evidence. There's supporting all that kind of stuff. But, but why? Why does God choose a people for himself? And as we said earlier, the main point of God's choosing is that we would praise him, that Christ would be glorified, that we would in turn glorify God for his work. We're going to continue to see that as we work through these 14 verses. And while it's right to say that, as the rest of the Bible would affirm, that everything is for God's glory, there is a specific reason that Paul gives here in verse 4 as to why God did this. Look at verse 4 again with me in your Bible. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God did not set his electing love on you and save you at the cost of his own son just so that we can go through our days living like the devil and ignoring everything that God has said. He saved you so that we would live more and more in holiness before him. There's a reason. There's a reason you're saved, and it's not to live for yourself. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now when he says being conformed to the image of his son is just another way to say that we would grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. How often have you heard about or known somebody who comes to Christ and professes faith and yet they continue to live their life as though nothing had happened? You, you cannot have an encounter with the living God and understand what he has done in, in choosing and predestining you and purchasing your salvation by the death of a son and then live your life as though nothing has changed. You can't. And I'm, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not saying that as soon as you get saved, boom, you never sin, you never mess up, you never go backwards. It's not the case. I'm talking about what is the trajectory of your life? Where are you headed? Where's the needle pointing on your compass? You might say, of course I'm not heading away from God. I'm a Christian. Well, do you realize that there is no neutrality in the Christian life? You are either moving towards God or you are moving away from him no floaters. You can't stay still in the world. The world is pulling at you and pulling at me. It wants so desperately to drag you down with it. And you are either moving towards God, towards Christ, towards holiness, or you are moving away. There is no neutrality. There is no Switzerland in the Christian life. You can just sit idly by and fold your hands and say, well, I'm a Christian. I guess I'll just stay here. That isn't the case. That's not why God saved you. There's a purpose. The reason that God chose you, the reason that he saved you, so that you would be holy and blameless before him. So what what does Paul mean? What does holy and blameless mean? We're going to get into the detailed and specific outworking of this when we get to chapters 4, 5, and 6. But we don't want to go three whole chapters without a little bit of application. So let's, let's take a look at what this means. So when Paul says that God chose us and saved us, that we may be holy and blameless before him, here's what I think he means. There are many 
many places in the Bible where we are called as God's children, as those who have received the gift of salvation, we are called to conduct ourselves in a way that is pleasing to God or to be holy. So we just started a Bible study in the book of Leviticus. Many of us are in those studies. And from Leviticus chapter 11, this is what it says in verse 44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Peter, writing in his first epistle, remembers back to what was said in Leviticus, and he says kind of a paraphrase of it in chapter 1, verse 15, when he says, but as he who called you is holy, referring to God, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. To be holy means to be set apart, to be different. And not just different for different sake, but different because that's what God has called us to do. In the case of the Christian, we are to be set apart from the world. If the world considers it normal, there is a good chance that we should be headed in the opposite direction. Not just to be weird. I know all of you. You're weird enough. We don't need more weirdness. What we need is Christ-like holiness to evidence itself in the way that we live our lives. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 16. He said, let your light shine before men that others may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The point of obedience is not just so you can check it off your list and say, hmm, I did a good job today. The point is that someone else sees your life and they look at you and they go, man, alive. It is so obvious that God is at work in their life. And they glorify God for his work. That's the point. That's what Jesus tells us. People need to see something in our lives that lets them know we follow Jesus. Does your life point to Jesus? Does the direction that you are headed, is it a clear and obvious trajectory to Christ and to holiness? Or are you floating and moving backwards? It's just a good self-assessment question. Where are you at in your pursuit of Christ-likeness? It's what it means to be holy. And I would just affirm once more, it is not perfection. It is direction. We are not saying that once you get saved, you better never mess up. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, once you have been transformed by the power of God, the direction of your life changes more quickly for some than for others. It's the point of living together in a community of believers is that we have the opportunity to encourage one another in holiness and growth and talk to one another and say, how you doing? Where are you at? Where's your life at? What are you doing? Get involved in each other's lives. That's what we're here for. It's what the church should be doing. Paul is not saying that we are to be holy and therefore we never sin. He's saying that the life of the person who recognizes God's work of redemption seeks to honor God in all that they do. Direction, not perfection. We won't be perfect until we get to heaven. So don't let that drag you down. Don't let that stop you in your pursuit of holiness. Man, I can't, I can't get there at all. Why should I even bother? Because we're commanded to bother. That's why we're commanded to. What about the other purpose? 
Paul says that we would be holy and blameless. What does he mean by blameless? And I think about it this way. You could think about it a little differently. But if God had not chosen me, if God had not set his love upon me and called me to himself, as it says in chapter 2, I would be dead in my sins and without hope in the world. I'd be totally guilty before him, which is the opposite of blameless. So by God doing what he has done in eternity past, in choosing in saving me, has made me blameless before him through the blood of his son. This is the declaration that is said over you at conversion. There is therefore, Romans 8.1, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus shields us from that condemnation, from the devil, from your conscience, from those around you. In Christ, there is no condemnation. Do you live like that? Do you know that to be true about yourself? And how does that work itself out in your life? God chose us. He called us. He saved us. Not so that we would live the rest of our life for human passions and the futility of our flesh, but he chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before him because of what he has done in Christ. Is it any wonder that three times in these 11 verses, Paul calls us to come with him in proclaiming to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all of God's grace. You ever wonder why we're called Grace Bible Church? It's because none of us would be here without the grace of God. None myself included. How vast the benefits divine which we in Christ possess. We are redeemed from sin and shame and called to holiness. Tis not for works that we have done. These all to him we owe, but he of his electing love salvation does bestow. That's the song that we sing. That's the song that we sing. Now, by way of application, I want to mention why the doctrine of election, God's choosing a people, should be something that we not only accept as a truth. You can believe something's true and hate it. I wanted to go outside today, but it's snowing. I hate that it's snowing. Well, it doesn't change the fact that it's snowing, right? So it's, it's more, I want us to get to the place where it's more than just stiff-arming this and saying, okay, I see it's true. Fine, don't talk to me about it. I want to get to the point where we can praise God and glorify him for what he's done. And there's three reasons why I think it's so important that we know this and understand this. Number one, knowing the doctrine of election should give us hope when we share the gospel. Knowing that it is God who saves should take the pressure off of us. Some of us, when we talk to people, we feel this pressure that, man, I got to close the deal. I got to get them to pray the prayer and all this stuff. You know what? You're not going to save them. God is. He uses us. We talked about means and ends the other week. God uses us. 
But knowing this, knowing that it is God who does this work, releases us from this pressure to have to close the deal every time we open our mouth. God is the one who does that. We can leave the work to him and sleep like a baby at night. Knowing that we've done our job in opening our mouth and proclaiming the gospel. Book of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. Second reason, knowing this doctrine should give us confidence in our own salvation if you are a Christian. Knowing that God has called us and chosen us gives us the confidence that we will not lose our salvation because we're not the ones that are holding on to it. It's God's. Again, from John 10, I read this earlier. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What is that teaching us? That because salvation is God's work, there is nothing that you can do to lose it because it's not yours to keep, it's God's. That's the confidence that knowing this brings to us. Understanding God's purpose in election helps us to have confidence that if it is God who saves, it will be God who keeps. God does not save you by his power and then say, whoop, let's see how this plays out. That's not God. God, in his love and his mercy, saves us, holds us in his hand. Get the picture of being held in a hand and no one can come in there and grab that out. No one. Third, and lastly, knowing the doctrine of election should enable us to know more confidently that God loves us. Have you ever wondered if God really loves you? Sure you have. At some point, you're going through something, and you go, man, it just doesn't feel like it. This doctrine is tailor-made for those kinds of fears, those kinds of thoughts, those kinds of doubts. God did not choose you and call you because of anything you did or anything you will do. His love for you is not based on what you can do for him. Rather, it is unconditional. He does not love you because of the things you do. He loves you because he purposed to love you, and it was according to his mercy that he saved you before we were ever on the scene. So if you wonder if God can possibly love you, knowing all of the wrong things you have done, knowing all the times you messed up, knowing all of the sin and failure and lust and greed and junk in your life, he can, and he does. When you're sharing the gospel with someone and they say, you have no idea how much I've sinned, what do you tell them? What do you say? Oh, I guess I'm sorry. I didn't know you sinned that much. I'll, I'll go talk to somebody else. No. You tell them that God has purposed before they were ever here to set his love on them and you tell them that he loves them. That's what knowing this does. 
knowing that salvation is God's work, should make us know with confidence that God loves us. He loves you. And he's not going to let you go. It's not who he is. This is such good news for those who are apart from God. Because there's nothing you have to do to earn it. There's nothing you have to do to prove yourself worthy. So when someone says, I don't even know if God could love me, what are you going to say? You're going to look at them and from the book of Titus, you're going to say, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what you say. And that's the only hope that any of us have. That God has planned it. God accomplished it through the death of Jesus. And he seals it by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, there's, there's nothing else that I can say. And so I pray that the truth that we have seen here this morning the reality that you are the one who saves would be so ingrained in our hearts, Lord, that we would never doubt your love for us. We would never doubt your good purposes for us. As we interact with those in this community, those who are right now apart from you, I pray, Lord, that we would have the confidence and the boldness to say, it does not matter what you have done Put your faith and trust in Jesus and come to him for washing and for renewal and for salvation. Father, make us bold as we open our mouths. We pray that your kingdom would grow in this community because we know that salvation is your work, that we wouldn't feel pressure, but we would feel freedom to share with everyone and leave the work up to you. Oh God, do this. Do it in our church. Do it in our community. Do it in our families. I pray for our children. I pray that they would come to know you. That they would know your love for them. And that many, many would come to know you. We thank you for this time, Father. Thank you for your word. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.